Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 160. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. So, with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Kurt Huffman. Kurt, are you feeling unstoppable today? <laughs> I don't know about unstoppable, but... Uh, I'm feeling good. I just had an omelet, so uh, All right. I'm a cinnamon roll, so I'm, I'm feeling ready to go. All right, let's do this. At the age of 15, like so many do, Kurt got his start in the restaurant business as a dishwasher. He continued to work in the industry, finishing graduate school in Scotland. It was at this point a close French friend asked if he'd want to go into business together. In 1997, Kurt and his friend opened a 20,000-square-foot brewery and gastropub in Lyon, France. Uh, Kurt would eventually sell his portion of the business, return home, and attend school at Berkeley. Eventually started Chef's Table, a business built on the premise of partnering with chefs in a way that lets the chef focus on what they do best, and that's food. So, Chef, this is just a huge aerial view of who you are, what you're all about, um, just, just the big picture, and I can't wait to hear your story, but before we do that, we got to get that inspirational, motivational ball rolling with a success quote. What do you have for us? Well, I mean, we, uh, our mantra in our office is irrational optimism, and that's not exactly a success quote or an amazing, you know, a takeaway from some kind of, uh, Nordic war poem, but it's, uh, I mean, it's really what allows us to continually engage in the, in the creative process of, uh, you know, branding and opening and, uh, and, and getting a business rolling, um, and hoping for the best because it's this, it's this nonstop, uh, kind of reinvention of the wheel. Uh, every time we work with a new chef, we really are trying to understand and interpret their, you know, what they want, what their vision is. And it's enormously risky because we're, we truly don't have a template, uh, for success each time. We're trying to, you know, reach time. So we have to be, we have to be a little bit crazy to, to do what we do. Um, yeah. So that's the quote. <laughs> <laughs> I think in general, you have to be crazy to get into this industry, especially if you really, if you're really passionate about it, if you're, if you're doing it on your own, you're getting your own funding. Like it's the most irrational people, the ones who are willing to live their life like no one else will, so they can live the rest of their life like no one else can. That you know, it, the question is, how irrational are you willing to be with your life to get to where you want to go? And I, I think I love that whole angle and then optimism obviously is just so crucial so awesome way to get this interview started uh i love it so we gotta find out more about you chef when was it that you just knew that this industry was going to be more than just a job but your career oh boy i mean not until pretty recently actually i and and i should interject that you know i i tried to be a chef for a little while uh, for probably eight years and i and I promptly gave up. So, uh, calling me chef, just call me Kurt. That, that sounds, uh, that sounds vastly inappropriate <laughs> given the fact that I have 
explicitly abandoned uh, working professionally in kitchens. All right. Um, but we, I mean, it's, you know, I think like so many people, you get into restaurants because it's one of the only industries that hires, you know, 14 and 15 year olds or 16 or 17. I mean, you can get into it, right? And you get into it and you find it's an empowering experience to realize you can make your own money at a very early age. And, uh, and for me, that was, you know, that was a really exciting uh, moment. And, uh, and then you get rewarded. I mean, it's an industry that's an absolute meritocracy. So you, uh, it doesn't, you know, you can't just be because your buddies or, you know, the son of a buddy, you, it doesn't mean if you're a slow dishwasher that you don't get yanked out of the, out of the kitchen. Mm. So you, you have to, so there's a real correlation between effort, whether you're smart or not. Uh, there's a there's a correlation between effort and reward and and feedback. So I think that hooks a lot of people uh, because all you have to do to do well in this business is try. Um, and I think and you you can have skill, especially once you get up into you know, specifically with you know, either being a very high performing chef. Or a high-performing, you know, bartender or service person. You know, there's certain skill sets or personality traits that are allow they're going to allow you to succeed more than others. But um, you know, for me, I just I really didn't think I wanted to do this for my life until you know I started Chef Stable in Portland. Um, I mean, I went to business school with the intent of getting out of the restaurant business because it was exhausting. Yeah, you get stuck back in, but it was all, it was what I, it's all I knew about. And I worked very briefly after business school while I was building Chef Stable as a consultant with a, you know, with like a corporate consulting group. Uh, and that was, you know, I was, it was fun, but I was terrible at it. Just I have the wrong personality for that. So really not until I was about 30, I don't know, eight, did I really understand that this is, you know, this is what I want to be doing. Mm. And and that was also because I had to find the right context in which I could really enjoy it. There you go. But I mean, I started out in the kitchen, right? And I, you know, had I had I gone into serving or bartending, you know, maybe I would have said, hey, this is this is what I want to do sooner. But you know, I just struggled a lot. I didn't have that almost spiritual connection to the medium that you know that chefs worked with. Mm. I didn't I didn't just intuitively understand. Yeah. Uh, how all this food works together and flavors work together, and it was pretty discouraging to feel like you're doing a good job, and then you go eat somewhere else, and you just feel like, man, I would, I'd never come up with this, or <laughs> this is so much better. And so that was the point where, for me, where I just felt like, okay, this is this is a silly way to be uh, making a, you know, earning a living. Uh, but it was, it's just at some point. It, it, you just have to make that decision because you're, you know that the, the, the amount of work required to succeed in this business is so huge. And the compensation is, is, is pretty, you know, pretty small uh, as a function of that, mm -hmm. that, that effort. So you have to, there have to be other reasons that you yeah. do it. But I mean, I just have to compliment you, Kurt, because of most people, I think, I don't know if the, the situation just fell into your lap, but what I've noticed from really successful restaurant professionals, like the Danny Myers of uh, the world, 
these types of people, what they do is they, they know what they're good at. They know their strengths and they just crush it, but they're really good at just seeing the, the, like the skills and the talents and other people and surrounding themselves and helping other people do what they do best. And they just surround themselves with these people. And that seems like your whole business model. So it's, it's ingenious to a sense, but it sounds like it kind of just happened that way. <laughs> it did. I yeah. mean, uh, the whole idea was when we were in business school and a buddy of mine, and we were talking. I was already, when I started business school, I started helping out uh, Andy Ricker, who's a chef who has a restaurant called Pock Pock here in town. And he's down in LA and uh, New York. And we started working together because I was interested in saying, okay, how can I, can I use all my chef experience or my chef suffering and help this chef kind of business in order? Mm-hmm. Um, because I was, you know, now I was taking these accounting classes and I was taking managerial accounting and finance classes. And so it was a way for me to kind of stay connected in the business while I was at school, you know, learning this stuff. And incidentally, you know, business school, from, from an academic perspective, is really is pretty poor experience. It's just not, you know, the only reason you should really go to business school is for networking and you know, 90%, 95% networking and job opportunities and five percent academics yeah um but you know it was still a great opportunity for me to to start practicing this or putting in place this idea i had while you know concurrently taking the classes at, at berkeley w- working with andy you know we worked on it for two years and we really kind of realized that maybe there was something there you know he really appreciated me being able to come in and explain to him and kind of chef talk you know what what we're trying to do and how we're trying to attack costs and mm-hmm. how we're trying to manage different things and and then you know so then we worked together and we did three more restaurants and that's kind of how Chef Stable started in Portland and and then it's such a close knit industry that as soon as one chef hears that you're helping a guy open a restaurant oh yeah he, you know he says oh well I have, I mean every chef out there has an idea of what their restaurant would be. So it's really just a matter of, uh, you know, I mean, for us, it then just became a sequence of listening to people pitch their ideas and going out and trying to find money. And um, so, you know, we really built this whole thing from the ground up. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, it has a lot to do with finding finding the people that uh, to surround yourself with uh, professionally, so getting a really good team, uh, and then finding out who to partner with uh, which has actually been a more difficult, uh, more difficult process is understanding how you, what characteristics you're looking for in a, in a good partner. Mm. And, and sometimes we've, we've, let's say probably 60%, 70% of the time we've done a, a good job and 30% of the time we've done a bad job. And those are just, you know, those are things that you learn. And, uh, hopefully over time we're, we're getting better and better at that. But fortunately for us, even when we've done a bad job and we've ended up not, you know, wanting to kill each other, we've been able to manage those disagreements in a really, you know, grown up way and, and kind of separated, which I think is a, another critical part of learning how to be good in business is learning how to accept, uh, you know, accept failure in all of its different forms and, and move forward and not get hung up on it. And, uh, as long as we're, I mean, we've never done in a restaurant that I was, you know, that I wasn't proud of. Uh, and so I, 
you know, that to me is the benchmark. Is as long as you're doing something you're proud of, then then you're okay. And yeah. Whether it makes money or not, of course, the, it's a different matter. I mean, <laughs> I think probably two of the best restaurants we've ever opened are now closed, um, and from a quality perspective. And, I think I think we're going to tap know? into that, Kurt, as the interview goes on. But this is usually where I ask my guests to share their it factors. Like, what is it, Kurt, that makes you so successful? What habits what characteristics do you possess and i was just listening to you talk and we're kind of going in this direction uh just naturally but the, some of the things i just wrote down are your ability like your desire to help others and just just listening and your strength and finance in general finding the strengths in others creating win-win situations and then just not looking at failure failing forward looking at failure as opportunities to learn um and those are just a few of the if factors but if you can narrow it down kurt so just a couple more it factors, maybe your strongest it factors, what would they be? Just philosophically, you know, I have a hard time, I have a hard time believing that there's possible just to kind of condense factors of success into, you know, really concrete things. And I, like an it factor, you know, I, I struggle with that idea only because, and we talk about this all the time, only because uh, every, almost without exception, the projects that we've done that we felt like were going to be huge home runs have been total failures. And then uh, the dark horse uh, projects that we, you know, that I was most nervous about end up being home runs. And, and so you try to say, what, what is the it factor, right? Just to use your words that made this thing work and that thing not work. And honestly, we still can't figure it out. <laughs> and, um, and that, and I think that, that that has become a very healthy thing for us because you having that humility of just understanding that, hey, this may work, this may not work, um, but we just have to focus on getting everything else right. Because I think there's like a 5%, 5% of a project makes it a, a success or not a success. And we have ideas what contributes to it, but we've had wonderful, wonderful concepts where if you're talking about like in, in general in restaurants people usually say there's ESP the environment the service and the product and and I am of the school that those are also ranked in order of importance or in order of uh, being indicators to the ultimate success of a restaurant mm-hmm. the environment is, is, is by far the most important service is then and unfortunately you know for for those of us obsessed with, you know, product quality, product is really the least important contributor uh, to the success of a restaurant over time or, or, or a bar. I mean, it has so much more to do with, you know, the environment and the service. But where, you know, as we look at... I was going to say, where would you say culture falls into this? Would that be a part uh, of the overall environment, do you believe? Uh, well, the culture is going to manifest, I think, on the, in a whole bunch of different areas. You know, I mean, culture is going to help contribute to a really great service and I think contribute to great products. I mean, mm. if you have, uh, you know, if you have this culture of, of, uh, of, of prof- you know, professionalism and uh, service excellence, you're just going to see that manifest then, uh, you know, with service and product. But, mm-hmm. you know, environment, environment's that one part of a restaurant that you truly do control right up until you open, you know, the two most important contributors to environment but once you're open, are sound and light, and 
those you have to have management on site. So the culture can help impact those by having, you know, truly an understanding of how people engage and how your space is kind of a living space engages with sound and light. And you just have to be on top of that. I mean, there's nothing worse than walking into, doesn't matter how beautiful a space is, you walk into a space at, at midnight and the lights are blaring you know, you're just like, Jesus, I got to, this is just, you know, I can't be here. It just, it's the same reason, you know, bars all over the world, what do we do when it's time to close? You turn on all the lights, yeah. right? Because now all of a sudden it turns a really nice, calm, sexy environment into, ah, this is, you know, terrible. <laughs> Don't, you know, nobody look at each other because, yeah. uh, you know, all of our imperfections are going to scream at each other. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, for, for, I mean, this is, I'm kind of getting off track here, but it is, and we, we were able to manage, I think, down to a very fine level of granularity the environment of a space. We still struggle a lot with making sure that our management also has that obsession, you know, with, with sound and light. Uh, and with other things, you know, clearly cleanliness, uh, clearly uh, upkeep, uh, things like that. Those all contribute to the environment. And that's where I think your, your comment about culture is critical. But, you know, when you open, and I do, I do genuinely believe that, you're going to know uh, within three to six months of a pl- if a place is going to be a success or not. Um, and I have seen, and it's, it's our opinion that, uh, you know, if you open a place and it's just hemorrhaging dough because it's the kind of place that requires a really big staff to run, there's big overhead, blah, blah, blah. The amount of dough it requires to get that thing turned around and r- running properly uh, is actually more than it takes to just shut down, rebrand, and reopen again with the right thing. But, you know, big, big groups, there's a wonderful place uh, from Denver that has moved to Portland uh, recently. And, you know, I know that they are struggling uh, here in Portland. But, you know, they're going to they're gonna stick it out, and they're, even if it's, you know, losses, because they can't, for brand purposes, close it down. I mean, you've seen... Everybody's seen places where they'll they'll see a PF Chang's or something go into a into a location and then just be dead, mm-hmm. and they will just carry that unit uh, through because they just can't afford to shut it down. Right? There's all sorts of other reasons. Mm. Um, but you know, for us, we're not we're not in that game uh, because in general we don't you know we don't do multiples of the concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, why why something works or what the it factor is that is you know if I knew that then you know we we'd be making a lot more money than <laughs> than we are and and frankly when I talk to people and they tell me that they have it figured out you know I'm not interested in working with them mm-hmm. uh, because you know the same reason in general I'm not interested in working with people that have never really failed mm-hmm. because I just know that they, their life perspective, it, not only is it uninteresting to me, because there's nothing more boring than talking with somebody who's been a winner their whole life and have never you know, faced adversity. I mean, that's like kind of the throw up in your mouth kind of uh, talk. But they just don't really actually know what they're talking about because once failure approaches them, you know, they're, they're going to be tested, and they're going to, and you're going to find out what's going on. So the one it factor, okay, if there's an it factor, um, and I can apply this to 
everything, especially when we're trying to decide who we work with. There is a one-to-one correlation in our business, again, between hard work and success. And uh, so when we're, when we're interviewing chefs, for instance, and if a chef is telling me uh, or she's telling me, you know, uh, I, my hope with this restaurant is really to have a wonderful uh, work-life balance and I love fishing on Thursday, Fridays, and, you know, I'm really hoping to uh, pursue, you know, my side career. Like I'm, we're, we're just, we won't work with people like that. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's great, and that is admirable. And, and I hope that sometime in my life I also have a really healthy work-life balance. But that's not this industry. Mm-hmm. And there is nobody, there is nobody out there that is, is killing it or, or that is, is established as an icon in this business who doesn't work, you know, set, who hasn't worked for 20 years of their life, seven days a week. We, it just, it just, they don't exist. And it is, it is, you know, so when you think about Jiro dreams of sushi, right? I mean, that is, that is the paradigm of, uh, uh, of our business. You know, Mm -hmm. if you want to be truly excellent, um, at this craft, if you want to be truly excellent at, you know, any of these things, you, you have to have an obsessive, uh, conviction to it. And, uh, so that's what we look for when we talk to partners is we want those people that are just, you know, insatiable. Um, and, and I don't, it's not healthy to do this forever. Um, you know, I worked very hard in France for uh, 10 years and that was uh, a truly difficult. And I more or less took, you know, three years off when I got back before I did Chef's Table again. But, you know, you just recognize that if you're going to be good in this business, you have to be driven and you and you have to be willing to sacrifice and and it is hard you know you have dishwashers quit you have your hot water heater that blows out all the time um and the challenge is even if you open two three four you know those guys you know the batalis and the bobby flays and you know those guys are they are working 24 <laughs> 7 yeah and you know that's just how it is then you know, we can all dream and act like, uh, uh, you know, it wouldn't be great if, uh, uh, if we just took more time and blah, blah, blah. And, they, and, you know, and they, and they schedule in what they, what they need to schedule in to make sure that they have a healthy family life, mm-hmm. which is something that I'm, I'm constantly struggling with because, you know, because crises don't care uh, if you have daycare <laughs> or if you have childcare, right? It's just like when something blows up, it blows up. So you're, you know, we're always working to uh, make sure that we have the infrastructure in place so that you can accommodate that. But, uh, and as you make more money, right, people are able to buy themselves the protection. Uh, and I certainly make much less money than I might because I'd rather have extra staff on my team to make sure I'm not having to be the frontline guy mm. dealing with the broken water heater and so forth. But if you know, if you want to get good, and if you want to, uh, and if you truly want to set it, you know, set yourself apart, uh, you you know, and Danny Meyer is a, another great example. It's just you have to be that guy that's super focused and driven, and is looking every night on the reservation sheets, and blah 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 blah. I mean, it's just it's a tough business. Yeah, um, and there are and there are no barriers to entry to get into our business. 
You don't have to go to school. You know, you don't have to. I mean, some of the most successful chefs I know um, are not smart. They are just driven, and they've got one thing figured out, and they're and they are just going for it, and mm-hmm. they're killing it. Yeah, you know, I mean, not smart and kind of like you know, they're not going to talk to you about uh, you know worldly affairs or something. But they've they've got something figured out, and and they're running with it, and it's uh, and you've got people like that in everywhere, you know, from you don't even need to speak English. Right, yeah. kill it in our industry. Well, I mean, I yeah, have to. <laughs> I mean, just listening to you talk, Curry, it sounds like what you what one of the reasons, one of the it factors as a group, as you know, chef's table group, is that you have that high standard and you're extremely selective on who you let in, and you set that culture that you know we work first, you know, and we and we, you just have that. You, you're very clear about it from the very beginning, and then it seems like the whole your whole reason for existing, the why is really impressive too. Like if you could say like in just a couple words, like why does chef's table exist? Like what is your purpose? I mean, like existentially it exists because, because I wanted to, I wanted to have a business that allowed me to stay in the food industry. Mm. And because I do love, you know, I do love, I do love it. And I, um, I love everything about it. So, you know, we, we exist First and foremost, because I was trying to figure out a way with my skill set that I could stay involved and I could contribute. Um, You know, and then, you know, why the reason why people have wanted to work with us um, is because, you know, I've been very aggressive about making sure that uh, the people I partner with are are put into a situation where they, you know, they can be owners. So in a certain way, you know, the reason that we exist or that we continue to exist or that we're a viable uh, company, at least theoretically, is that, is that we, we put, uh, you know, we're committed to the idea of, of chefs owning their own, uh, you know, intellectual property Mm. um, of owning their own stuff. And that, that has turned out to be a very popular um, idea amongst chefs, and why wouldn't it be right? It's yeah. like in general, when you're in your chef, I mean, it's the typical the typical path that you would walk as a chef is work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, promotion, promotion, promotion. Finally, uh, opportunity to be a um, uh, a, a chef, you know, like a name chef, you know, executive chef, so and so. And, you know, if you look at all the chefs that went through the Danny Meyer restaurant, that's clearly the, the traditional trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you get these awards and you get recognition and then people with money come to you and say, you're, you're a genius. I want to open up your restaurant. And then you open up your restaurant. I mean, that there's, there's legions of examples of how that happens because you're never going to make enough money as a chef. Right, unless you have a trust fund, um, <laughs> you're never going to make enough money as a chef to open up your own restaurant. You know, and and the very very rare examples uh, are a guy like let's say Andy Ricker, right? Andy Ricker opened up Pop Pop um, by essentially putting his life savings, you know, when he was about what I think he was about 40, 42 at the time. Um, you know, he put his life savings into into his business and he, and he opened it with credit card debt. I mean, it was, 
a crazy venture um, mm-hmm. when I met him. But those, those examples are so rare. Oh yeah. You know, in general, uh, it's it's you know you go through that path. So in any case, and we kind of break. We we offer chefs an opportunity to break that paradigm. Um, now, a guy like Alan Richman, uh, who's a food and wine editor for a GQ magazine, um, he's a, he's a guy that loves Portland. So I've ended up talking to him uh, a lot. You know, his his critique of our business model is that we make it too easy uh, for <laughs> chefs to open a restaurant. Right? That there's there there is something valuable in in the suffering. Uh, of many, many years in the trenches uh, before you open your own place. And when he first told me that about three years ago or four years ago, I was quite offended. And now I actually think he's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we have made it uh, too easy on certain chefs to open. And as a result, uh, there's there's not this kind of existential crisis or anxiety uh, about opening because uh, it's because they haven't worked as hard as other chefs to get there. Mm. You know, there's not this just, like, ferocious desire. And so, that, you know, that brings me back to what I was saying, uh, you know, that when I talk to chefs, uh, you know, it, they, they have to have – the thing I need to see is I need to see that, uh, that, that kind of unsatiable uh, uh, need to, to work and, 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 and be excellent. Um, and uh, and the chefs that I that do have that in our group uh, are the ones that have had the most success. Yeah, and I love just, it. And you, know, I, you mentioned earlier too that they have to have that uh, experience with failure to to know what that tastes like. Uh, I think you mentioned that before too. And on that topic, I have to ask the next question. We have to move on. What is one failure you had, Curry? If you could take us through one failure, because I just feel like we learn the most from those failures. So tell us about the time you fell hard on your ass and how you got back up. Oh, so many times. It's, uh, <laughs> I have, I have a idea. Failure and I are on a uh, first name basis. So it's not a, uh, this is a relationship <laughs> I've had with, uh, with uh, Mr. Failure that has uh, been uh, going on for decades. <laughs> so I don't, um, and I think in most entrepreneurs, I think, or business owners, um, will you know will have developed uh, a comfort and an ease with with failure um, because it's just it's inevitable you know it's like you can't nobody bats a thousand in any yeah. business. Well, so, you talk about your ability to accept failure. So tell us about one of those failures and like bring us through the moment what sure. happened and how you got uh, out of it. Uh, oh boy, there's uh, which one? <laughs> um, there's so many. There's, uh, let's talk about I mean, uh, <laughs> the biggest uh, total collapse, um, at least in the last 10 years. And uh, and this was a very stressful time. Was we had a restaurant, we were brought in to help salvage uh, a restaurant, very large restaurant that had opened uh, in downtown Portland, uh, and it's called Pino and American Brasserie. And Pino was huge and it's probably 200 seats which for portland is massive i mean there's there's maybe four or five 200 seat restaurants in the entire town um and uh we were brought in by the investor group that had done Pino, and they had lost you know like a million five on this deal so really and they're looking at this thing just like what the hell do we do with this 
Mm. And uh, so I met, you know, the two principals, and I said, look, I, there's, a, there's a group in Chicago who I have a huge admiration for. They did something called a Big Star in Chicago, um, and a guy named Paul Kahn and uh, one-off restaurant group. In any case, they are superstars. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, let's do something like Big Star, Big Urban Talk Rias is going to be awesome, music. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, so I brought in uh, a chef to do it um, who uh, his, his, his grandmother was uh, Mexican. He had these very strong feelings about wanting to kind of open a restaurant as an ode to her, mm. um, you know, to that heritage. And I thought, okay, this is perfect. You know, we worked together at another restaurant already. Um, his food costs were awesome. Beverage costs were awesome. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the space that we built was, uh, you know, it was okay. Uh, I thought it could have been more pretty. But when we opened, it was such a massive fiasco that, you know, to this day, it still kind of boggles my mind how, how we ended up doing what we ended up doing. And, 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 so, and so it was a disaster. I mean, I, I closed it down after about four months. Oh. Um, and we just, you know, we lost a ton of money. And uh, and then we, you know, and I guess this is a good parable for uh, failures that then, uh, you know, I convinced the investors to let me close it, subdivide it, and reopen it at three different restaurants, which we did. And then that's been a huge, a huge success for us, um, and that was three years ago. Um, so, you know, you have to... Uh, so, A, there's the story of, you know, converting failure into, into mm. success. Um, and, there, and there are lots of other reasons aside from, uh, you know, reputationally, being able to do something like that is really has amazing benefits in our industry because all of a sudden you're seen as uh, somebody that doesn't accept failure at face value and you figure out a way to turn it into something good. So... Uh, you know, that story for us uh, has has turned into a really great story because commercial real estate people look at it and they say, oh, wow, they turned a giant turd into really a little gem of a place. And it makes us seem much less risky maybe than other operators. But in any case, back to the failure part, uh, we just, you know, we I had a huge amount of trust in my partner as to uh, what the food cost was, how the labor was structured. But in general, my business before, I left all those kitchen things to my kitchen partner, right? Mm-hmm. He does, he took care of that stuff. We took care of the other stuff. Um, and we did not oversee it at all. And when we opened, we were hand dicing salsas, you know, our labor, our kitchen labor, <laughs> it was, it was outrageous. Our kitchen labor was so high. Uh, and, uh, and our uh, front of house labor was so high. It was just, it just boggled our minds to look at it. And we were so far off and we, the staff was, you know, just in total shock. And, uh, the restaurant just devolved. It, you know, we just, we hit, we hit the alarm bells basically, you know, a month in and we could just not get it. We could not get it right, even close to right. Um, and Alan Richmond actually came in and ate there. I'm just remembering this. It's, it's funny. And I can't even remember what he said about it. But, you know, my, my partner essentially just walked uh, on opening night just saying this, this wasn't for him. This was a huge mistake. And 
so the, you know we didn't have a chef um and you know throughout this whole thing i feel like there's lots of opportunities to point fingers right and say well jesus my you know my partner walked on me first night and uh and not only that but all the work that had been done, uh, done up until that point was a total fiasco blah 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 but at the end of the day right you know, I'm I'm standing there carrying, you know, holding the the bag full of poop, mm-hmm. and it, it's my fault. You know, that's the only thing to say is is just, you know, I'm I'm the guy that signed the lease, and I'm the guy that signed the debt paperwork, and this is my fault. And uh, and so in those moments, you know, you just have to be able to take a step back and say, okay, you know, where do let's let's uh, let's go through the huge inventory of everything we screwed up here on this project and try not to do it again. Mm. And so, you know, now we're very involved in all the food costing to a point where almost always there's like a miniature fight uh, with the, the chef partner because, you know, they don't like being treated like idiots. You know, like, well, show me your food costing. And they're saying, I know how to food cost. And we'll say, well, we've actually worked with even a James Beard winner who had no idea how to cost food. Like, you may think you know how to do it, but let's just make sure you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are things like that where we've had to, to get involved. And, and for me, what it is is it's just, you know, it's just becoming a grown-up business. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we were just, you know, it was kind of like, hey, this is a fun idea. I'll do my job really well. You do your job really well. And if we both do it really well, this is going to be awesome. And, um, and we can't take those risks anymore because – uh, we have to, you know, I, and I would encourage them to double-check my my math on things. But, you know, you have to sit down and make sure that everybody's everybody's doing their, their, their job. And now we're very confident with ourselves, right? But we're not confident at all with, uh, with the people that we partner with. So we do, uh, we do have to double-check and we do have to make sure that uh, – so that, that was the byproduct of that failure is that it allowed us to say, okay – this is a weakness in our business model. Let's correct it. So that was opportunity number one. Opportunity number two is how do we how do we how do we try to address this failure quickly and turn it into success? Because if you can do that, then even if financially, let's say in the aggregate, it you know I, I don't even know if we've ever even paid ourselves back for that initial failure. Mm-hmm. But in the aggregate. Right, reputationally, it has enormous power uh, to to be able to to, to correct uh, a big blunder because you know a you show that you're responsible and you're taking responsibility for it, and b uh, people that you don't think are paying attention will pay attention. So for us as commercial real estate developers, they look at that and they say. You know that makes uh, that makes them feel very confident about us. Yeah, uh, because they they'll say, "All right, well, hey, even if even if their concept completely just stinks, uh, they are a group that can uh, you know close down, redo things, bring in new talent, and reopen. Uh, so it's not like I'm I'm just going to sit here uh, with an empty space yeah. and having to find somebody that comes in. So yeah. So Absolutely. that was unexpected. 
Some of the things I wrote down here, Kurt, that really stood out to me was just your ability to own the situation. You didn't go around pointing fingers. You took that ownership. You moved forward. You had that optimism was another word I wrote down because, I mean, most people, they would fail and they would just get, you know, they would just like soak and marinate in their failure and not look to the future about what's next. What can we do to make this right? How can we learn from this? How can we fail forward? You absolutely fail forward. And like you look at the situation and you said, like, what can we take from this failure to you know what were the lessons that we learned so we don't recreate what happened and i think when you have that attitude you're optimistic you look at failures as a way to learn and is it really a failure if you learn so much from it i mean if you have this arsenal of new lessons learned like i don't think it is but it was great and uh we have to move on to the speed round and you were have such you've been such a great guest this first half man just so much great advice but you're gonna blow us away now with bombs of knowledge and the first question i have for you are you ready for this <laughs> yes <laughs> all right the first question i have for you kurt is what is your advice for getting the capital to get started, that initial capital. First of all, you just have to swallow all of your pride. You have to go out there uh, and really believe, you know, believe in what you're saying. And I think be uh, be honest and prepared. And the people that I like listening to the most um, are chefs that come in and have done all of their homework and show all of this stuff. Uh, and and because what it tells me is, I know they don't really know what they're talking about. Right, where everybody's making up numbers when you're talking about provisional expectations yeah. of any business. But just to show that you've done your homework, that you've really thought about it, that you're serious about it, right? it makes a huge impact on people that may put in money because it, it tells you, it suggests to you that, hey, these guys are taking this. This, this is a serious business, right? Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're serious. So I guess, you know, having your... Uh, having all those uh, the, all the fancy stuff together, it makes a gigantic impact because it speaks to other things aside from you know who you are as a person. Um, and uh, so I would, I mean, my biggest advice would be to you know just get buckle down. If you hate the idea of asking for money, and just swallow that and, and you know, ignore it and push it deep down inside you and put on a smile. Uh, and get out there because it's, it is very, very hard when you start, perhaps one of the hardest things in life, to go out and find people with dough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there, there's no secret to it. You know, you've got to ask, 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 and hopefully eventually somebody's going to say yes. Uh, but, you know, that's why it's such a great filter in our business anyways, is that if you don't have that gumption and that fire, uh, to to raise you know fifty thousand dollars, and you're probably never going to be a success anyways. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And the other thing you mentioned, like you, if you do your homework, if you take it seriously, that's a direct uh, indicator of how seriously you're going to take the business once you do get the loans. Like, are you yeah, that exactly. same? Yeah, and it says so much about someone's work ethic, their ability to do the work. Um, awesome stuff. Great advice. So the next question I have for you, Chef, is on the topic of hiring. What are you looking for? What questions are you looking for? Like, what is it that you need to hire for in people in this industry? Uh, well, it depends on uh, it depends on the uh, the job, really. I think uh, you know when you're talking to um, you know a cook, or you're talking to uh, a server, a bartender, um, or you're talking to somebody you know that has management. Um, objectives. I, I do think it's all very different things because 
the motivation behind servers is completely different than the motivation behind cooks. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, honestly, when we when we hire servers, um, as much as people in the service industry don't like to hear about it, but you know, servers are a dime a dozen, and they make huge money. Uh, it takes relatively zero, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, skills. Uh, aside from a great personality, which is, of course, a very hard thing. Uh, not everybody has great personality. Yeah. Um, and an ability to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are, you know, those are not... My wife is waving at me, like, don't don't say terrible things about uh, <laughs> servers. But it's, you know, but it's true. It's just not, it's not as difficult uh, of, uh, of a... Uh, it's not as difficult to, to find. Um, and that's just, that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, to find, and there's nobody, nobody in this industry truly will disagree with me, because if you ask them, what's harder to find, a line cook or a great server? And by a factor of 100 to 1, a line cook's harder to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just, it's an impossible, uh, that the skill set required, the amount of money you can pay them, uh, blah, 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 is just, it's just tiny, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, you just ask different things. I mean, for me, we can be more demanding with servers uh, because, you know, because it's a, it's a sought-after position, and that's just simple economics. If you're making $50 an hour versus $14 an hour, what job's going to have more applicants? I mean, it's just, you know, it's so yeah, obvious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, you just ask different questions. Um, awesome. And uh, so for me, you know, with, with servers, what we don't want is we don't want – uh, people jumping from job to job to find that higher paycheck. So mm-hmm. we do want to see stability. And honestly, day one, what we want to see is we want somebody to come in and we want them to know that menu inside and out. Mm. You know, there's a, uh, in server positions in general, uh, there's much less patience to work with them to get them good because, because it's a job that pays so well that people should be excellent day one. Oh yeah, um, and you know so. But then when you're talking with kids that are working as line cooks, I mean, here's a great you know. So let me get this straight: you just went to culinary school, you have forty-five thousand dollars in debt, and now you want a job that pays twelve dollars an hour, right? That's <laughs> that's that's usually the step one of interviewing anybody in the kitchen. You know, like what you know. First of all, you have to be you know. Are you you have to figure out whether this kid understands truly what he's doing, mm. um, which incidentally is why in the industry we're all a little bit suspicious of kids that have gone to culinary school because you're kind of wondering, has, has this girl or guy thought this through, mm. you know, because here they, they, they come into the business, they've got all of this debt, um, nobody in the industry, not even in Manhattan, you know, people are paying $12 an hour for entry-level wine cups. I mean, can you imagine making that in Manhattan? Oh, my gosh. That's just, it, it's absurd. Yeah. And, or in L.A. or San Francisco. Uh, and so you, you know, quickly you, you try to get into why are you, why are you doing this? And, and the hope uh, is that with line cooks is that, you know, you're able to filter out the people that think they're going to be an executive chef in a year um, and they're going to have their own line of, you know, knifeware. Uh, of which there are a lot of kids like that nowadays. They think they can work for two, three years and then be on a reality TV show. Yeah. So, Kurt, I, uh, I'm going to ask, what whys are you looking for, though? You said you ask, why are you doing this? Like, what deep down inside are you hoping they say when you ask that question? Well, you want some kind of composite 
answer that has anything to do with I want to become a better cook. Uh, and, you know, and, and hopefully you're going to see a career path or some logic behind it where, they're, you know, they're working at this place for three to four years and at this place. And, and mostly you want to hear uh, cooks that want to learn, you know. Yeah. So somehow their, their story has to be I want to learn. Mm. Um, I want to learn about uh, uh, what chef is going to teach me. You know, I want to learn. Mm. And I, those are the kids that you want. Um, and, uh, and what you don't want is just kind of, uh, you know, you don't want the, the, the guy that's shooting for the reality show or the, the kid that um, thinks they know everything. Or, yeah. You know, it's a, because at the end of the day, it's a, it's a grind. I mean, in the past, what you would look for is the kid saying, hey, I wanna, I'm going to show up early and leave late. And I'm going to get there an hour early, and I'm going to sharpen all the knives in the store, and then I'm going to clock in and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and nowadays, uh, you know, that's how it was when I was a kid, yeah. when I was growing up. Nowadays, you can't, you know, a kid that says that, you're like, man, I love your spirit, but unfortunately, that's completely illegal. <laughs> There's no way we can <laughs> let you, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you are at the restaurant and you're clocked in, period. Um, you know, it's, those you know that world is changing, but you. But still, we're tr- still trying to find that same motivation and excitement and commitment. You know, and I, I think it's very much like any craft, right? If you really want to become a, uh, I don't know, a stone a stone sculptor, right? It's like, shit, you got to go work with somebody that carves stones, <laughs> and it's probably going to take a really long time, and you know the pay is going to be dismal while you're doing it. And blah blah blah. You want to find the kids that truly want to be, you know, the because it's not it's not really art, right? It's a craft. Yes. You want to find those craftsmen, and you want those people. That's the dream. Yes. And they are are rare. (laughs) When you find these people, Kurt, how do you keep them on your team? Uh, Well, uh, you know, you have to you have to have market rate pay. Uh, We try to have other things that. Whether it's uh, you know cards that give them big discounts at our other restaurants, or um, you know, and I think you just the biggest thing is that you've got everybody's got to be treated like a grown up and, and treated with respect. Mm. Um, and uh, and I think people appreciate over time. You know, you've got to be smart about making sure that key people have kind of growing senses of responsibility. Um, and um, and, and but it is hard because it's you know you invest uh, we invest a lot in uh, in training and um, and you know whatever else can make the workplace an enjoyable environment um, but it's it, it's hard to keep people and really the, the 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 restaurants that you know are are nominated for James Beard Awards or nominated you know that have where there's a certain cachet to work there much easier to keep those teams oh, yeah. right because it's great for your resume blah blah blah. but uh we have a sandwich concept a counter service sandwich concept called lardo which is fantastic sandwiches um and you know you you train people there and um and they stay for a little while but then in general it's kind of like a, a launching pad you know mm-hmm. they work there because they aren't able to get on in a bigger kitchen but they come in uh, our chef you know, he used to work for, uh, uh, you know, Todd English back east. He's very well trained. So 
you know, Lardo is a, is a platform that's very much respected uh, uh, locally, right? Yeah. And, um, and so you, you, you do your year, and then people realize you're serious. Yeah. And then you can jump, jump to, you know, those, those more respected restaurants. So almost no matter what we do uh, at a sandwich shop, we'll, we just won't, we won't be able to keep the, those great people. And, and the hope, and we have found this, is that they'll go away somewhere else uh, and find out that, you know, that the work environment wasn't as nice. Uh, and then hopefully we can kind of lure them back into the family. Yeah. And we do, and we do have a huge number of chefs that have been at one of our places and go to another and go to another. And then over time, you know, uh, uh, kind of strategically for us, what we're going to try to put in place is really to be at the forefront of figuring out how to massage the tipping paradigm uh, uh, in you know in our restaurant in a way that allows us to to significantly increase. Uh, how much we pay our line cooks, mm-hmm. and uh, and that to me is going to be the long term. Uh, that has to be the long term fight because it's you know that, that that's the biggest threat we have yeah. uh, to the restaurant industry, at least in the Pacific Northwest, and I certainly know that's the case in Seattle and San Francisco. Is that we're not an industry that's going to uh, that's going to excel uh, with uh, you know with rents going where they're going and all these things happening yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna succeed with uh with uh, uh 12 an hour 13 an hour wages you know we have to figure out a way to get everybody in the kitchen to a place where they're starting at 15 and where the line cooks make 18 and um because we're just not going to survive otherwise and, oh, yeah. and the only place that we're going to find that money because you know a lot of our you know, some of our restaurants do very well, but most of them uh, are just kind of, you know, flying above the surface. Uh, you know, and in those restaurants that are uh, break-even or slightly better than break-even, you know, those are the restaurants where uh, we have to figure out a way to get uh, more money into the hands of cooks so we can hire good talent. Um, and so, I mean, we're going to be aggressive, and we just open up our very first restaurant with a $15 an hour minimum wage where our line cooks are making 18 an hour. Uh, and it's just a bar, right? So it's simpler. But the idea is to experiment with these things because we're, we're going to need to figure out a way to pay those guys more um, uh, so that we can continue to attract talent into, into the business. Yeah. I mean, um, I think what I'm hearing, if I can just summarize, is basically a lot of restaurants, they have trouble keeping people because they don't put the work into being great themselves. And it sounds like, you know, you've got to really just focus on taking care of your people, uh, being a place where they can come and learn, and just investing in them. Um, so, like, when you can't keep people on the team, is it because you can't find good people or you're not a good company to work for? You know what I'm saying? It sounds like you really yeah, strive exactly. to be a good company to work for. Yeah. Awesome. So, the next question I got for you, Kurt, is on the topic of resources. If there's one book you can just drop on us, one book you've read that you think is a must-read for anybody getting into this industry, what book would that be? Um, anything by Danny Meyer. Yeah. So, uh, setting the table, I guess, is uh, probably the is that's the right name, right? Yeah, setting the table. Right. What's one yeah. lesson from that book that is the reason why you have to read it? Oh, jeez, <laughs> there's so many. I mean, 
yeah, I mean, that's, you know, he's just, he's such a, he's such an inspiration for uh, any kind of, you know, restaurant owner in the business. Um, um, and he just had a really wonderful uh, talk he gave. I think he was at a graduation, but uh, it's a really wonderful talk about the irrelevancy of being right. Um, and I think that is probably one of the best, um, you know, if there was ever a, a four-minute talk that I would love to make all of my managers and partners watch, it's that. Um, the irrelevancy it, it, of it, being it, right. I'm, I'll try to throw that in the show notes this episode. Yeah, it's, uh, it's you just look that up, uh, Google it, and um, and the point just being that, you know, it's it, in, in what we're doing, in in the you know in what our occupation is or what our profession is, we are welcoming people, we are hoping to show them a wonderful uh, uh, moment, and then we are saying goodbye to people, and if during that moment. You know, nowhere in that moment should we become obsessed with the idea of being right. Mm. And and what that means is that if somebody says something is wrong and they're not happy, right, our only job is to make it better. Mm. We, we gain nothing by showing the guests that they are wrong to say something is well, wrong. You can even go further, and, Kurt, and say, like, in the conversation between two people you're working with, if you're making a decision, like, who, why does it matter if I'm right or you're right? We need to make sure the customer is being taken care of right now. You know, you just waste so much yeah. time and thought on it. Yeah, and I, I think there's, you know, and, and that's, you know, because once you're at the restaurant in that environment, right, now we're, now we're, on stage and the show is going mm. you know when the curtains fall and we're all sitting around and we say okay what what you know what went wrong there then we can have those conversations about you know you know then it is important to be to be right mm-hmm. to say oh the you know we are misspelled whatever on the wine list or yeah. something like that i mean there are but in the moment and with guests you know truly being right is is just a distraction, and I think it's a distraction that's become that is a problem for us here in Portland. Is that uh, especially in you know on the on the server side, uh, a lot of young people are uh, you know don't like to feel like they're wrong, no. um, or don't like to feel like you know when a guest and and guests can be listen if you worked in the business you know that there believe it or not there's a few number of people out there that can be jerks. Oh yeah. Um, you know, the human race has a, a few jerks in it. Mm-hmm. And um and those people, you know, when you're confronted by them, you know, true you know, true restaurant professionals like Danny Meyer, he will just slide through that problem like it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And and that that is his excellence. Mm. And I have and I'm guilty I've been guilty of it as, as well, is that in those moments, if you insist on being right with this person you will just end up making it a horrible situation because you get confused with what the goal is. Mm. And Frank, I thought that was, you know, he's just a source of smarts. So oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I love what he puts out. So I'll have to try to find that and share it with everybody. Thank you for mentioning yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. the next question, Kurt, on the topic of technology, this industry is changing faster than ever. Every feels like every month there's a new service or product that can help us be more efficient, more productive, more profitable. What are some of the tools you're leveraging in front of house or back of house that you've just really seen a great impact since you've adopted it? 
Well, I mean, clearly the the whole reservation thing has become, uh, you know, like the open table part is, and I do, and I do think that's a very fragile industry. I mean, open table has been very aggressive and become the dominant force. But at the end of the day, I mean, it really only costs. I looked into it; it's forty to fifty grand to build a proprietary reservation system, and we have thought about doing that for our own restaurant because we pay a buck. You know, we pay a buck a guest. Yeah. Um, for so it's a huge, huge number. You know, open table. We're cutting big checks to them every month, mm-hmm. and you know, part of me feels like, especially nowadays, that people. You know, I think that, that Yelp has really helped break that paradigm because so often people use Yelp or use Google, and right on Yelp it says, you know, there's a button that says reserve, right? Yeah. And it takes you to the website, and which is so often the open table one, but. I do think that open table is like a means for finding restaurants. Uh, that that could disappear quickly. Mm-hmm. How often do you use open table to look up a restaurant? Me never. I know where I'm never, going. Right? Or or if you do, you probably go onto a Yelp or, or Google Maps or something just to find out, you know, it's like, oh I should call them to see if there's a wait or something like that. You're never using open table as a search platform. So, um, so case, are I, you suggesting open table or not suggesting open table? Uh, as a, I guess what I was saying is that that the whole online, the, the means of using the internet to help reserve tables at your restaurant has had a huge impact. We found a lot of benefit in it, but I also was trying to suggest that it's something that's in in massive transition right now. Um, but I do think it's going to continue to be a really important way of managing uh, your guest experience. And then, you know, and again, back to Danny Meyer, where it can have huge impact is in, in, in ongoing outreach to your guests uh, and, and making sure you close the circle on that experience. So for us, one thing technology-wise that, we're, that we've been working on a lot is a, is a loyalty app. And this loyalty app um, is mostly for our, uh, our fast casual restaurants. So you know, our counter service places, you go in and it's similar to what Starbucks has. You know, when you buy a sandwich, you can get a credit for that. Uh, once you've had a whole number of them, uh, you can you can get, uh, you know, a, a free sandwich, let's just say. Um, but And there's a lot of out-of-the-box ones that exist in the market right now, which is a good way to engage in your clientele. But we've actually developed our own. Uh, over the last two years, and our point is, and this is really the holy grail of almost anybody in the restaurant industry, is how do you develop a, a digital uh, membership program or loyalty program whereby you can actually send direct, uh, you know, customized offers to to your guests uh, in a way that thanks them, you know, for being for coming in so often, but also that kind of push markets what you want to push market. So if you want to say, if you want to, for instance, if you have a restaurant that's slow from three to five every day, you can actually send out to all of these people in your program, you know, an offer for that specific time period. Mm. And that's something that no, nobody's doing, none of the out of the box, the loyalty programs is doing. I think it's a, I think it's an area where we're going to see a lot of growth because especially at the big, big box uh, restaurants, you know, like, you name it, you know, TGIF yeah. or whatever. I think you know, those are restaurants that are going to finally get smart and get into 
what the airlines have been there forever, what the uh, you know casinos have been doing for the ten years now. Uh, that's an area where I think we're going to see a lot of growth, and we're certainly trying to embrace it quickly. Um, but how guests interact with that in a sit-down environment, you know, if you have a James Beard restaurant, do people want to register uh, the fact that they've come there? And that's something that my partners are having a hard time getting their head wrapped around, um, is does that cheapen the experience? My opinion is that uh, it doesn't, and when I think about all the rich people uh, that I know, uh, and, and I look at their travel habits, right? They're all, uh, despite being totally wealthy, they're all obsessed with like the points they have on Delta or United <laughs> or what their status is or anything else. So it really, you know, so I do think that there's being able to recognize uh, and communicate with your guests, whatever that technological medium is, and I do think it's going to be some IT thing uh that that's that's the holy grail that the restaurants are going to need to get better and better with and that the technology is out there whether it's these table beacons that people are using now uh that will quite literally wake up you know pretty soon when you walk into starbucks right if you have the starbucks uh they're going to have it's not even it doesn't even need to be facial they'll have these beacons and they're a wonderful little thing that looks like kind of a half a box of gum. And it just sticks under a table, has a two-year battery, it costs $4. And it sends out uh, in an eight-foot radius a, uh, a Bluetooth signal. And if you walk by, it'll actually wake up your Starbucks app and say, Hey, Kurt, you know, uh, just for you today, X. And that sounds a little minority reporty. Yeah. You remember that Tom Cruise movie? Yeah. But it... You know, there are there are ways that you can manage that where it doesn't need to, like, buzz your phone and yeah. Yeah, music start well, playing. It, it may just kind of, you know, wake it up, and all of a sudden you'll see a message, uh, and you can choose to open that, and it's like, oh, there's an offer there, and that's kind of cool. So, you know, being able to cut through the noise and communicate with guests out there, uh, I think is going to be an area where we're going to see a huge amount of growth. And I don't think it's just going to be limited to uh, to counter service or coffee shops. I think that oh, sit down yeah. restaurants and Michael Minna is doing it. Uh, his brother launched something called Invisipay, and it has a loyalty app on it. So RN74 and those restaurants are doing it. So there's, you know, it's just one of those areas that people don't realize the amount of movement going on in it because oh, yeah. we just don't think that way, but there's huge movement. Yeah, and, no and hopefully we'll Yeah, one-on-one marketing is the way of the future. Oh, yeah, and push marketing, that's the yeah. key, right? Yeah. Because you can always just throw stuff out there like uh, you know, Bloomin' Onions. I mean, they're famous for sending out 100,000 Bloomin' Onion coupons for Outback Steakhouse. And then having no idea, you know, where, like how many are getting redeemed and where. Right now, I can send you and offered, and if you redeem it, I can see that you redeemed the offer. I can see what time you redeemed it and everything. And and that's wonderful because then I can thank you, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I can reach out to you again and say, you know, hey, man, you know, I, I know that. Well, we probably wouldn't say, hey, man, but <laughs> we'd say, <laughs> uh, 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 we'll know that the last time you accepted an offer, so why don't I uh, offer you something for somewhere else? Um, and you've got to do it in a way that's not like, uh, um, 
what were those cheapo offers that they would have online? Um, uh, I forget the name of that cup. Groupon? You know, the company that, yeah, it's not Groupon. No. You can't be Groupon, no. right? You have to have it focused. Like I think the, the airline industry has done very well. Yeah. You have to have it focused on loyalty. And really, as people become more and more loyal, you know, you want to be able to return the favor, you know, and you want to make it fun. I mean, at Lardo, our sandwich shop, we're going to be able to know who each month eats the most uh, Cubanos. Yeah. Right? I, uh, a sandwich. And I we're going to, and you're going to, if you eat the most in July, you're going to be the king of the Cubanos. And that's kind of funny. I would love to get that. I mean, maybe I'd be ashamed, but I, I think that's awesome. I'd love to be the king of the Cubanos at Lardo for. I'm not, I mean, that's, that's, that's hilarious. I've got to ask her, have you heard of Venga? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like kind of what you're describing, they're onto it. I don't know, um, but is that kind of what you're getting at, a service like that? Uh, kind of, kind of, yeah. And that's where the subtlety comes in, right? Because mm-hmm. then we're all, we're all trying to make sure that it's classy enough and unobtrusive enough. And so that's what we're all working towards. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that's a technology that's going to, uh, end up having a massive impact because, oh, yeah. um, you know, just the using of phones. And, you know, in October, we switch over to this whole, um, uh, you have to have the capability of doing a, a, a pin debit transaction yeah. in every restaurant. Yeah. And that also that. means, right, and that also means that the whole pay-by-phone thing of just holding your phone up yeah. is going to have to happen. And those, that, that, interaction between paying and the mobile device means that all sorts of other things can be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's going to be a pretty major change for counter service restaurants. Uh, how that impacts sit-down restaurants is really fascinating. And we're, you know, I have no idea, I'm guessing, but we're really excited to see what happens and how we can make it a better experience for the guests. Awesome. Great stuff. So I've almost asked all my questions. We're about to wrap it up. I mean, if you could go back in time, Kurt, to a time, maybe it was, you know, 1997 when you're out in France or maybe in 2008 when you started Chef's Table, if you could give yourself one piece of business advice, what would it be? Oh, I give myself one piece of business advice. You know, I would go, I would go back to myself right when – we are starting our business in France and just say, you know, no, no, no when to stop or no when to cut losses because our business was going well there. But I spent probably three or four too many years beating my head against the wall. And, um, and, and there's no reason to, when you're starting a business, you know, it, it takes a long time. I mean, shoot, start, uh, uh, Chef's Table's been going on for uh, since 2008-9. So, you know, seven we're years. six and a half, yeah, seven years in. And, um, you know, so we've been working a long time on this. But I, there was a point where I, I knew this, this you know, this is going to work. Um, what I didn't, you know, in France, my problem is that I also knew that, I, you know, I was never going to have the role uh, or the 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 equality with my partner there that I wanted just because of the personality differences. And had I, you know, that's probably my only one of the only regrets I'll admit to in life is just, man, I wish I had, I wish I would have recognized the fact that um, I just didn't need to suffer that much. Mm-hmm. And actually, here's a better one. 
Okay. Here's a better one. Is is I wish I had told myself, and this is something I didn't learn until I was in business school. I wish I had told myself to to learn how to value your own time, uh, because I did not understand that in France. You know, we just kept working, and for the first year, we didn't even pay for ourselves. We like live with my partner's family, and and then we started, and we kept making these decisions that made it almost impossible for us to you know to even pay ourselves. Mm. And it's like that is that was absurd, and you know that's something that when you look at, it, you just say, you know, how do you? Um, and I, and I still don't think I'm I'm, I'm great at this. I, I think I undervalue my my own time. But you know, living like comfortably um, uh, and living in, in misery are are two different things. And I you know, I wish I had I wish somebody had pulled me aside at some point and just said, look, you've got to be able to sit back at some point and say, you know, is this is this you know, are are you are you valuing your time? Are you insisting that your time be considered valuable? Um, and so many people that start businesses don't. They just launch into it, and they just don't. They never kind of consider um, what they should be making, or you know, or what is comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, if you can't live at least at a point where you uh, where you're comfortable, then it's just. You know, then starting your own business is just is probably more miserable than it should be. Mm, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Awesome, great stuff. So, if there is one question I could have asked you that you think you would have brought more value to this interview, what would it have been? Oh, um, I have no. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I think you've done a great job. I, I don't. I don't know. Thank you, Kurt. Well, that is all yeah. I have today. You've been awesome, uh, just incredible guest. You put so much care and thought into all of your answers. I hope you don't mind going a little bit over the 45 minutes, but uh, it's no, been fine. well worth it. <laughs> so uh, we wrap up every episode, Kurt, by having you call someone out. Who's one indie restaurant professional you admire and just think would make a great guest mentor like you have today on the show? Oh, um, you can give me a few. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Um, um, well, I mean, there's a lot of guys I, I, I'd like to emulate, whether it's the, the guys in Chicago I was talking about. We just uh, recently spoke to Paul Kahn. I mean, that whole team in Chicago is, you know, I'm so impressed with. Um, and, um, you know, we went, my wife and I actually finally went into Amateur Tavern about a week ago, and um, you know, just so impressed with uh, you know, I felt it was very dated on the inside. It, it mm-hmm. felt very, you know, early '90s. But boy, the service was so immaculate, and uh, the food was really excellent. Um, so uh, there's a guy named Brian Lesler in uh, Boston who I really admire, uh, and a guy named Bill Chase out of Los Angeles who I have a huge amount of admiration for. Um, and Bill's a guy that, uh, man, has changed for a long time and uh, knows this business inside and out and is now doing something very similar to me where he's investing in chefs. But I would say almost without exception, uh, everything he's doing uh, is better than everything I'm doing. And I, you know, I, when I look at kind of how professional things are there and how you know, I feel like that's, He's in a place that I would love to be in in ten years. 
Um, so yeah, I guess if there's any, it'd probably be probably be Bill Chase. I think he runs a really extraordinary operation down in Los Angeles. So that was Bill Chase. Did I hear you mention Brian Lessler? Yeah. And Brian Lesler, and I think you might have subtly mentioned Danny Meyer and Paul Kahn, too. But yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, I'll definitely try to get in touch with those two gentlemen. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Give yourself a pitch. Uh, if somebody wants to come work for you in one of your restaurants or be, join the team, what's the best way to connect? And don't forget to tell us about your new radio show that's out there, uh, too, which I actually listened to the, today, and it's awesome. <laughs> Uh, so it's just go to the Chef Stable Group website, www.chefstablegroup.com, um, and you can just uh, send in information there, and we connect uh, everybody with all of the management at each of the individual restaurants. So that's the best way to, uh, to get a hold of us. Um, I'm always happy to do informational interviews with people, although we are really busy right now. Um, and then... Yeah, we do a, a dopey radio show called The Hotline. Uh, <laughs> me and my me and my best friend from childhood, who's also a restaurant guy, um, and uh, you can find that on the SoundCloud somewhere. It's on KXL FM in Portland, Oregon. But it's uh, yeah, I mean, this is all about your podcast, and so uh, just I've appreciated uh, talking to you. No, it's it's been my pleasure, and I'll have links to your show, your podcast, your radio show, uh, links to everything we discussed in today's show. Just go to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash Kurt Hoffman. Kurt, man, you've been an incredible guest. Like I said, so much care and thought in these answers. Uh, there is no questioning, man. You are unstoppable. Oh, well, thank you. That's nice to you. <laughs> Cheers. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurants Unstoppable. Kurt, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. You rocked it. Every once in a while, we go a little bit over the targeted 45 minutes, but you were just on a tear, dropping great advice on us, sharing great knowledge. I couldn't stop you. I hope you guys don't mind hanging out a little extra today. Uh, don't forget to shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. If you can think of any mentors that would make great guests on the show, I'm always looking for new people to connect with. And give me your ideas. What's a topic we can discuss on the show? I'll get an expert on the show who can help us all learn together. And don't forget to check out restaurantunstoppable.com slash books and slash tools to get a complete list of all the books and tools our guests have recommended and use in their restaurants. All right, guys, until next time, peace out.